this is Jan Swift, and you're listening to Discover Lafayette, a podcast dedicated to the people and rich culture of Lafayette, the gateway to South Louisiana. Our taping is made possible with the support of Raider, a hands-on IT service provider that integrates all of your needs for advanced technical support, effective communication options, and cybersecurity. Raider's motto is, you just want it to work. We understand. Please visit RaiderSolutions.com for more information. Support for this podcast also comes from HomeBank, banking from anywhere with tech features for everyday needs. And when businesses and families need a banker, HomeBank is there as friends, neighbors, and partners in the community. Learn more at home24bank.com. HomeBank, member FDIC. Today we welcome Dr. Kip Schumacher, co-founder of the Schumacher Family Foundation. We're also joined by Erica Ray, Director of Operations, who leads the Foundation's efforts, along with Carly on the bar. Kip is a board-certified emergency physician who established the Schumacher Group in 1994. Kip attended USL and LSU Med School and then worked for 17 years as an ER doc at Opelousas Medical Center. It was there that Kip realized there had to be a more efficient way to treat patients while helping the hospital make the financial side work. He established the Schumacher Group with a goal to help hospitals streamline their emergency operations. Kip grew the Schumacher Group from managing the ER services at 10 facilities in one year to 50 facilities in five years. After experiencing exponential growth, Schumacher merged with ECI Healthcare in 2016. That group, SCP, has grown to be one of the largest healthcare partners in the country, serving over 8 million patients in 30 states. Today, Kip is bringing his caring touch to help our most vulnerable get the most efficient access to much needed services. I'm gonna step back and let our guest explain much better than I can what the Schumacher Family Foundation sets out to accomplish. But before I do, I wanna do two things. I'd like to have Kip share his background, growing up here in the Lafayette area, getting a wonderful education, and I know the community helped you do that, and, and growing in the way you have. And I'd like to start out with a quote. I called Kip one of your buddies, Gary Keller, who I know you and Gary go way back. And I told him I was conducting this interview today, and he said, and this is Gary, somebody told me, I can't believe you and Kip are working together. And I said, this is Gary, we have two things in common. I know that nobody is going to outwork us, and nobody is going to outsmart us. And I thought that might be a good way to let you talk about your journey. Yep, thank you. And Erica, thank you for joining right. us. Yeah, that was that was a, a typical quote from Gary. Well, so. yeah. I mean, who's going to outsmart <laughs> right. or outwork you or Gary? But thank you for making time. This is, um, you're, you're you really, you've made such a big impact in our community. And people wonder how you did it. How did you get started, Kip? Well, I, I got started by being lucky to have been born to uh, really amazing parents that that not only loved me, they were they were Christians and taught me that uh, that uh, you know there's more to uh, life than just working and enjoying the fruits of your work. It's about mm-hmm. giving back and you know being part of a community. I mean, we learned that uh, what it means to live in a community that gives back to you. 
Mm-hmm. You grew uh, up in Lafayette? I, I was born and raised in Lafayette. Where'd you go to high school? I went to, well, let me tell you, grade school, Hamilton, would oh, you believe? Oh, wow. That was yeah, a long way back. Yeah. That yeah. means I'm old, but... No, not <laughs> okay, really. So. But I mean, a lot of people look back on that as being really the best right. elementary school in education. So so it was Hamilton yeah. and then Lafayette High. Yeah. And then on to UL. You mentioned USL earlier, but I'm right. sorry. I'm kind of proud of the fact that I went to UL. UL okay. Lafayette. Yeah. yeah. Forgive me. Or yeah. US, right. So yeah. anyway, uh, you know... Uh, I was lucky also uh, to have been afforded opportunities, uh, you know, when I was uh, just getting out of high school, to uh, to work at the the, uh, the hospital uh, as a lab boy, and uh, that's where I had gained my interest in medicine was from my brother who also had worked in the the, the lab at Charity Hospital. What did you do? And uh, what type I, of work? I, I would work at night to collect specimens and also run the tests and mm-hmm. then, you know, report those out uh, the next morning. Did you have dreams and, of being a physician? You know, my brother was uh, had is the one that first had the dreams and mm-hmm. when I was younger I listened to him and was inspired by, you know, his his desire and, and willingness to sacrifice uh-huh. himself to to do good things for patients. And so uh, it was really, you know, uh, the experience that I had with my brother that, that led me into medicine. And and then, uh, you know, when I started uh, college, uh, he was the one that uh, had been in school for a number of years and had been accepted mm-hmm. to medical school. So he showed me that it was possible to do it. Yeah, and, but uh, I mean, LSU Med School. Right. That's not an easy path. Yeah. Right? Uh, well, <laughs> And <laughs> right. to pay for it. I mean, that's like, you know, right. getting in and... Right. Covering, but I guess back in the day, you know, back in the day too, tuition was more affordable, but it still wasn't easy. It, it was more affordable, and 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 I was lucky that uh, you know, not only did I have that avenue of a job to be able to pay for it, but uh, I also learned how to make jewelry and started yeah, a jewelry manufacturing. That. I thought about business. Matt Stoller. I don't know if you right. guys were partners in crime or just maybe both talented and well, I, I working called, out of your I, car. I called Matt one time and told him that I was in a bind and needed some jeweler's rouge, and <laughs> Matt was nice enough to uh, take care of me. Uh, yeah. So uh, that was the, the, the early contact with Matt. But, yeah. you know, my, my jewelry was completely different. It was costume jewelry, and it was made out of bent wire, and yeah, I sold it at uh, art shows and uh, and some retail establishments. In uh-huh. fact, at Dallas, uh, Barbara Dallas was the first one that actually bought some jewelry from me and and showed me that I could actually uh-huh. make a living making jewelry. And so, uh, do you still tinker on the side? Do you still have that creative uh, bent? Uh, a little, uh-huh. but uh, kind of got other things. Yeah, going there's on. there's other things. To yeah, to occupy my time. So you ended up in the emergency room. I guess you figured out. That was your passion when yeah, you went it, through well, med school? Well, it was. I started out in pediatrics, and then when I started moonlighting uh, on the weekends, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to help pay for bills, uh, you know, I, I just fell in love with emergency medicine. And, you know, it wasn't just emergency medicine. It was really, there's a lot of, of, of interaction with just pa- patients in general that are having trouble accessing the healthcare right. system. And, and I was introduced to parts of the uh you know, the, the population, the demographics that uh, mm-hmm. most people don't run across. And uh, anyway, it was just really a, a, an amazing experience to get to know people uh, from generation to generation. So I would take care of kids and then over the years had the privilege of taking care of their family members, their their, right. their grandfathers there, and, and got to know a, a lot of the, the families and saw how challenging medicine was 
uh, from an access standpoint for many people and, and right. is one of the things that I really enjoyed about it was being able to serve in, a, in difficult situations. What I find interesting is, um, <clears throat> and seeing too how things have evolved, you know, there's always been a shortage in the rural communities. In right. Appaloosa's, it's right. grown, but it's still a small community. But to work there, I know you grew up here and you could have gone probably anywhere in the right. state or elsewhere. But to be in Appaloosa's of all places, you really were helping people that probably didn't have access to a lot of health care. And you were there, is, is 17 years right? Do I have that number right that you were? Well, I got no, this stuff I, I, off I was the there about, about 15 <laughs> to, to 17 years, yes. Uh, and, and, and That's still, a long time at and, one hospital. It, it was a long time. It yeah. sure was. I and, lived right by there. I lived in Hidden Hill, so that was our go-to. Oh, no kidding. Okay. Somebody, okay. That's why our girls went to the academy. Right, that's right. kind of how we met. But, I mean, that was really the closest place. If you had an emergency... Right. I mean, one night my husband ended up, he was trying to get a label off a bottle, a glass bottle, and cut himself open. And we ended up at the emergency room. Thank goodness right. that we had Opelousas right. General right there. You know. Well, and, and the neat part was it's, it's people from all walks of life show up. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and it was a real privilege to, mm -hmm. to be there to do more than just write the right prescription and uh, refer them to the right person. Uh, it was an opportunity to kind of help people through uh, mm -hmm. difficult times. And uh, Had you studied business, though? I mean, I know that you were there, and your mind must have been clicking about things could be run better, at least in the ER. I know you weren't questioning right. management, but you must right. have, over the years as a doctor, gone— right. Maybe there's some way to streamline this. I mean, were you a? Did you study business? No, I, I had not studied business, but one thing that I did learn, uh, and it didn't take long, was that, you know, as a doctor, we were taught that you go in and, you know, diagnose what's going on, and then you prescribe treatments that are going to end mm -hmm. up helping the patient. And uh, the truth was that uh, if you really wanted to do the best job you could for your patient, it's not my prescription that is the one that ends up making the difference. It's everything around that patient that happens too. So if if the, the ward clerk is, is rude to the patient mm -hmm. and they're not in the, 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 the mood to listen to what I have to say and then take the prescription I wrote, then the, the, the fact that I had really great diagnostic skills and the ability to prescribe the right medicine didn't, yeah. do any, did, didn't work mm -hmm. because the, the patient didn't uh, take advantage of the, the opportunity. And so what I learned was you had to make sure that you were part of a team and that everybody was respected in the process. And and so, you know, we started, uh, and I was lucky to have met Karen Reynolds, the head nurse at the time, and, mm -hmm. and she just taught me about, uh, you know, what was involved in really taking care of a patient. And it's a lot more, a lot more than just walking in the room and writing the script and, and mm -hmm. hoping for the best. It's, again, being involved in the, the, uh, the hospital committee structures. It's being involved in working with the hospital administration. It's being involved in working with the, the local medical staff. Right. Having relationships with all those people are, are so critical to be able to make sure the patient receives the kind mm -hmm. of care that they deserve and, and ultimately will be the best kind of care that they can receive for them. So that, that was the strategy, really, that led me down the, oh. the, uh, the path of starting uh, you know, Schumacher. the Schumacher Group at the time. Is it a myth that, you know, you hear this, that maybe some of the doctors don't respect all the lower staff. I mean, that seems to be a stereotype. But from what you're saying, you were really trying to instill in people that it is a team effort. Right. That it's not like this hierarchical deal. It's right. we're together. We have to be one. 
to that's, make sure this right. patient gets out of here, you know, healthy, and also that they they feel, I guess, motivated to stay healthy. Right. And, and I mean, it really uh, it seems like a pretty simple philosophy, but it's a philosophy that I find is holds a lot of people back, not just people in the healthcare business mm-hmm. and business in general and in life. You know, they they're, they don't stop and look at the people around them and realize that mm-hmm. their lives are so dependent on uh, a lot of people out there that they don't show the kind of respect that they should. And I think we as a society learned that with, uh, you know, this pandemic. Yeah. All of a sudden, we had to make sure that people were showing up at Walmarts or Mm-hmm. The, the grocery stores to be able to service us to sell us food and you go down the list of people that before uh, you know hadn't been shown the kind of respect they probably should have been mm-hmm. uh, because all of a sudden we realized how important it was that they got out of bed and went yeah. in to be a, potentially exposed to illness right. to serve us and and so I always looked at that as you just got to make mm-hmm. sure you look at everybody around you and realize how they fit into the grand scheme of mm-hmm. what it is that you're trying to accomplish right uh, and in my case it was for the patients that we were serving. Right. So. so when did the light go off about starting Schumacher? I know that I read it started in 1994, but you must have been right. letting this percolate. Uh, what what caused you to pull that trigger? You know, I had a, a doctor that I was friends with that ran uh, the the uh, contract at another hospital in, in Iberia Parish. and uh, Run, Ran the contract. Ran the contract. He was the one that... Uh, provided the physicians for his practice oh, there. I see. Okay. And, you know, they worked with him to service the patients there in, uh, in, uh, in New Iberia. And uh, he had decided that he was going to retire. And he called me and said, you know what, you do this really well. I think you need to end up uh, coming over here and talking to the board of directors and they, they need you to come replace me. And so leave Opelousas and go well, not, not Well, not, not leave Opelousas. It was for me to just Take that on. To take on from an administrative uh-huh. standpoint. And uh-huh. so I decided I was going to give it a try. And uh, then once I did that and realized uh, how rewarding that could be, mm-hmm. uh, I really decided to, you know, kind of kick this into higher gear and really focus on that being my calling to go out and really provide the kind of service that we did there at Opelousas. And again, it was a service that was dedicated to not only the quality for the patients and making sure they're treated with dignity and respect, but also the philosophy and the vision that that's dependent on a whole team that you have to support. And so we brought in a lot of resources that hospitals, I don't think had experienced before, like experts in lean process management for the flow through the emergency department. And we just brought a lot of expertise in and invested mm-hmm. dollars into those kinds of disciplines that I think defined us. And we must have done something right because we right. we went from one facility in, uh, you know, 94 mm-hmm. uh, to now, again, 400-plus uh, facilities yeah. and, uh, and seeing 8 million patients a year. So, Can you define for us, like, for someone like me that just walks into a hospital and all, or, or knows doctors, I never really understood how doctors end up where they are. Were they always hired, like you're saying, and run the department? Were they, was there somebody that would make sure enough doctors were on staff in the ER? They weren't just employees right. of the hospital. Were they contract well, workers, you know, you or know, how origi- does that work? Originally, when I started in Opelousas in 1980, mm-hmm. um, uh, the hospital just independently contracted with each of us individually. 
which means they had four doctors that worked in the emergency department, and we all had, had uh, our contracts with the hospital itself. You were an employee there, we're, like and not an employee. It was an independent contractor, okay. but yeah, just you could say we were employees. Mm-hmm. And uh, and and the hospital then realized it was really kind of a pain to have to worry about scheduling and other things, and so. You know, I approached them and said, look, I'll do all the scheduling and I'll take care of all the payroll and I'll take care of the medical malpractice and oh, I'll do all that for you and thing. you just pay me and, uh, and manage that, it. it'll, I'll manage it for mm-hmm. you. And, and and that's what kind of led me down that path of realizing that mm-hmm. if, I, if I can have th- these physicians that are working f- with me as opposed to working for a department of the hospital, right. I think we could really help manage things better and, and yeah. bring some value to the table. And again, was, I, was that groundbreaking at that time though? It, it was, uh, it, it was, it was pretty new. It was something mm-hmm. that uh, other companies had just started doing. And by has just started, I'm talking about over a, a five year period of time prior to that. Yeah. So it was, it was a pretty new, uh, uh-huh. new concept. So things have evolved. I guess I'm curious about lessons you've learned. I don't know if people have changed, but Management, you must have learned a lot of lessons, but we're all still knuckleheads, right? Like you're right. hiring a bunch of we, we knuckleheads are all still knuckleheads, that are, have MDs, right. you know, right. and I mean that with respect. But yeah, I mean, we're all knuckleheads, all of us. Okay, so well, I am too. Yeah, so. But it's a lot of people yeah. to manage. That it's consistent. Well, You're doing great. Yeah, yeah you know the, the the one thing I've I've learned if you if you have a, a really good mission, mm-hmm. and you have a vision that you can communicate very effectively then it makes it a lot easier mm-hmm. because you attract the people that believe and care about the same things you do. And as long as you make sure you stay true to that mission, then you're going to have people there to make you look good or to yeah. you know, keep you, uh, pick you up when you fall down. And mm-hmm. the other thing that I found was that you know, whenever you had something that caused heartburn, I can almost guarantee you that was an opportunity for you to yeah. learn something that made you better. And mm-hmm. so I go back and look at the real challenges that we dealt with, and I can tell you that we're where we are today because of those challenges. It, it forced yeah. us all to, to get better at what we mm-hmm. did. So, uh, And something that Gary taught me early on, too, was uh, focus. you got to be careful about the shiny baubles. Oh, yeah? You know, you know your mission, what your yeah. mission is. Make sure you stay focused on that. And uh, uh-huh. and then uh, Bill Craze, my CFO, that uh, came in at a critical time for us, taught me that cash is king. You better not get over your skis because if you do, you you're gonna have a fall. Boy, is that true, huh? Yeah. And uh, but you guys are all over the country. Right. Well, are you within the U.S. only? Uh, yes, but we do have a, a captive uh, insurance company. In fact, uh-huh. that's one of the challenges we dealt with. We had a really, uh, uh, you know, tough market insurance market, and uh, the company that was providing us medical malpractice insurance went bankrupt, and so we were put in a position to have to start a, a captive insurance company for our like medical malpractice coverage, self-insurance. I don't know if you and know so, this. I chaired a lot of your medical malpractice panels. Like I would be named as an attorney. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. I didn't know and that. So I yeah. learned that it goes on your books. Like, you know, anybody right. that's being sued doesn't want litigation on the books. But when right. you're self-insured, it's a liability when you're right. trying to grow and, and capitalize your company. Yeah, I'm an attorney, and I used to right. do that. Right, right. 
But um, I learned a lot from watching you guys because you really had to keep things. You wanted to take care of business, but not have it just linger. Right. You know, sit there for a year or and, more. And, you know, that's interesting because one of the things that we learned also was how uh, painful the the medical malpractice experience it was yeah. for the doctors, mm-hmm. for the company, for the hospital, for the patients, patients. everybody. Yeah. You know, it was... Uh, it was just a terribly painful experience, and, and the, the insurance industry had a tendency to want to put those things off as long as they could. And the longer they delayed it, the, the better off they thought they would be. And we decided that mm-hmm. it's better for the patients, instead of having to you know, wake up every day for six or seven years thinking that their mama died because of an incompetent doctor, right. as an example, we learned to work with the patients and talk to them about the experience and accept responsibility for what we we mm-hmm. felt we needed to accept responsibility for and and our our closure time to closure for our cases went from five years down to thirteen months. I remember that. And yeah, that was I would huge. get those cattle prods, you know. Right. But it right. was good because it helped me understand more not only the human side but the business side. And it's all it's all business. I mean you, you guys have to stay in business to treat us. Well, so you no know? margin, no mission. Mm-hmm. That's the, that's what the nun said. Is that, yeah. <laughs> no margin, no, <laughs> no. mission. <laughs> How long were you on the board of the Academy the Sacred Heart? It was a, a couple of years. Yeah. yeah. I think I joined right when you were getting off. I don't right. know if we mentioned that during the intro or before we started taping, but you've done so many things. But that was, yeah, I lived out in the country by the Academy, and right. uh, we both served on that for you know the, a while the, the, the good old days <laughs> i had the playground built i know erica we're going to talk with erica in a minute but that was like one of my passions to see that school right. thrive and, and grow yeah. so yeah well look i want to um is there anything you want to talk about that i haven't asked about schumacher was there something you thought i would bring up about your business no uh, no i mean i think that's good and you're yeah i do have one more question right. do you still go in the emergency room do you ever are you still practicing I, at all i, I don't you know, I it, it uh, I, I stopped practicing. I guess around uh, t- 10, 15 years ago, mm-hmm. and uh, it's it's something I really miss because I really enjoyed the time that I spent with 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 patients and uh-huh. uh, learning not just about the disease process that you were dealing with, but just them as a, a, somebody in a in a life trying to live a good life. You know, just trying to take care of some of the challenges that they deal with. And and uh, some of the best times I had were late at night when you get older patients that would come in and their families would come in with them. And uh, then you would hear about, uh, you know, about a life, a life of that would sometimes amaze you. You'd see somebody who was almost uh, could hardly c- carry on a conversation. Mm-hmm. And you found out that they you know, storm the, the, the beaches at, at D-Day or something like that. And so to, to, to realize, you got to be careful about trying to, uh, you know, decide who it is that you're talking to yeah. just by right. the interactions that you have with them. Right. Because there's a, a life there. And whenever we're in the hospital, I think yeah. any of us, it doesn't matter what we've done. Yeah. We're just there vulnerable. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Well, look, before we move on... Um, I'd like to pause and reflect back on an interview we did with Lynn Gedry. He's a local architect, and he's a historian of Lafayette Parish. Lynn loves this community, just like you do. And in this interview, he shared how our forefathers had the entrepreneurial vision to build a great place for us to enjoy quality of life and opportunities to grow families and successful businesses. You can hear Lynn Gedry's interview, along with about 270 others, 
at discoverlafayette.net. And now the moment. And I had heard people use the term wildcatter mentality, and um, but people are willing to roll the dice here. It, I think Lafayette's different in that mentality. And so when I heard your presentation about how Lafayette leaders in the past had invested in their own city and got people to invest with their tax money, right. it wasn't just the roads you were talking about back in the 1830s that made us the hub city. Right. But in the late, I guess it was in the late 1800s when Lafayette Utility System was established, that was also a leap. A lot of the small towns around Lafayette didn't have electricity for for quite a while. It as a yeah, as an example. Well, yeah, that happened in the that was an early development when Lafayette Utilities was established. The vote was in 1897, and so the utility plant, which is now LUS, was built in 1899. By as an example, Scott, the city of Scott, got electricity in 1927. I mean, so almost, think about that, 30 years. Yeah, almost 30 years later. Yeah. And then the rural parts of the parish didn't get electricity until the 30s and 40s right. when the, um, uh, the, the the rural co-ops, like Slimco. Exactly. Slimco, it was, it was a, federally manned, a, a federally funded thing where... Companies During the like, Depression, it was funded, right, right to right. come in and help It was a way of bringing utilities to those areas right. where it really wasn't economically feasible to bring utilities. Mm-hmm. So the federal government subsidized companies like Slimco and Clico and Energy or Gulf States in mm-hmm. those days. But you- <coughs> it was a referendum. You know, people in Lafayette got to vote on whether they wanted to build an electricity plant. Now, I've got to ask myself, how did my great-grandfather – understand anything about electricity. I mean, I have a hard time understanding about mm-hmm. electricity today, but someone in those days was was convinced some kind of that way. That was an act of faith that yeah, our money's going to yeah. be well spent. We'll, we'll do something that will benefit you. Right. And, and and as a result of that, many many decisions were based on Lafayette getting something because we had electricity, including our university. Mm-hmm. At the time when the university was being founded. There were other cities under, under consideration. One was New Iberia, and one was Scott and Lafayette. Lafayette got it, and the ultimate reason why Lafayette got it was because Lafayette had Welcome back to Discover Lafayette. We're here with Dr. Kip Schumacher, and we're now being joined with Erica Ray, who's Director of Operations with the Schumacher Family Foundation. Erica, thanks for taking time to join Kip and me, and we've been talking about his business journey, but the success that he and your wife, Carolyn, together have enjoyed has allowed this incredible foundation to be developed. I think you started in 2018 and you guys have impacted our community in so many ways. I mean, I know about the educational efforts and different things. I know there's a house that's being auctioned off. I'm going to buy a ticket for $25. But if you can talk about maybe your involvement with KIPP and uh, the scope of the foundation, and you can both talk. I want you both to chime in about what's important and, and what the mission is of the Schumacher Family Foundation. So we're in the educational space, but we're also um, in disaster relief recovery. And I think that overall we're about bringing community together and being a catalyst for greater things to happen. And I think that, you know, whether it's, um, it's there's always an opportunity for engagement. Mm-hmm. And just, you know, 
sit for a minute, you'll see your your opportunity. And sometimes those engagements are really small, like sending thank you notes to 4,350 um, <laughs> Lafayette Public School uh, staff members. Wow. Um, you know, and that was an opportunity for engagement. We we got several groups together to write them, and um, even the 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 jail. There were inmates that they have an educational program at the Lafayette Parish Jail, and so inmates wrote thank you letters to to part of the four thousand three hundred fifty Lafayette Parish mm-hmm. School uh, staff members. Mm-hmm. So there's always an opportunity for engagement. We um, we took a model from um, Arizona from a uh, an organization called School Connect, who had a ca- a cafe, a community and family engagement model, and it's principal centric. So we brought it to we started with nine schools in the Lafayette Parish School System, and now we're up to twelve. And it's about bringing community around each school mm-hmm. and from different sectors. So you might have a nonprofit sector, a business sector, a faith group, parents. Uh, the middle and high schools have students on this group. And it's, you know, doing small to bigger things for the school, but just showing them some, someone cares and helping to partner with them and, and get some things done. And, and, I, and I think that was one of the most important things is it's showing the kids, showing the teachers, showing the principals, mm-hmm. showing the superintendent that somebody out there cares about them right. and, and is, is willing to do, in some cases, big things, but the little things often or more important, like the note that we sent out. We ended up giving uh, some uh, other gifts to the teachers, but it was that note that brought them to tears, literally. And so here we were in this environment where we thought giving them earbuds or, or something else was going to be the big thing they cared about. But it was, it yeah. was, it was, it's just people feeling like they're safe and they're respected, and it's amazing what can be accomplished if you can do that. And yeah. The word community is what I've picked up on. And if I may ask, there are a lot of different groups that work with our schools, that work with children, that work with this and that. But it seems to me that your foundation has really been effective in getting the community to get engaged. We have, to me, it seems like we've had a disconnect in the past. We have so many kids in the private school system. So a lot of the people that would be like you two, their kids might have been in private school. And yet the majority of our children are educated in the public school system. And you've been able to really ignite that fire, not only to show the principals, the teachers, the students, but the community, us, you know, that we matter, that this, everybody matters. And uh, it seems like I first found out about your foundation I was friends with the lady that used to be at our Savior's Church, and they've moved on. But um, she got me to come help stuffing backpacks, and it was like United Way kind of deal out at the hot warehouse. But it was love our schools, our Savior's Church, other people. And I looked at that, and it was, it was I mean, hundreds and hundreds of people showing up for a few so, days. So like, that's the perfect example. I felt so happy there. Well, that was an, an opportunity, an engaging moment. Mm-hmm. And just like you— participated in stuff backpacks, so did Missy Manuel with Manual Builders. Yeah. Yeah. And Missy sat on one of our cafes. 
and she saw the need at, at that particular school, mm-hmm. and it was an avenue into the community coming into the school, but not only the mm-hmm. school, but all of the schools. Right. And she and her husband, Greg, out of the generosity of their heart, um, wanted to donate a, a new build to Love Our Schools and so that's that's where the that's where the home raffle yeah. comes. Oh, in. it is Greg Manuel's. Oh, yeah, wow. they, they they donated the the house. And, where is uh, it? Rodney Savoy donated a lot. He did. You, you would, where where is it? Correct Farms. Correct Farms. I'm gonna have to buy that ticket. You better <laughs> to yes. win. I you, mean, you need to buy four. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it raises my okay. odds. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, you know, I mean, it, it's it's uh, really amazing how once we realized mm-hmm. that the community engagement piece was more important than anything else we could do, because mm-hmm. when we first started, we 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 engaged the community to to, uh, to for dollars to then convert that into uh, you know renovating a number of schools, nine different schools, and it it was a big event, but it was more uh, from a, a top level down, right. And what we started realizing is we really need the relationship at that for the principal level and mm-hmm. to have people around the principal that listen to what the principal needs, not to go in and tell the principal what they need. Exactly. Because they're so busy and, trying to make ends meet and educate. Yeah. And, and, but that's and, what most committees do. Like all these different committees I've sat on over the years, and you probably have too. It's us sitting in rooms talking about what Others are doing, and we're not the ones doing it. Right. We need to know what they need, and you guys yeah. are doing that. Yes. That, that's what's so special about this. And, and and by the way, this isn't just schools that can benefit from that approach of the community can solve the problems. You know, we're working with one of Katie Ann on the Vibrant Community mm-hmm. Project, and, yeah. and, you know, we just had uh, uh, Chuck Marone come mm-hmm. down of Strong Towns, and you know, he was talking about how do you create a, a, a strong town with the right kind of culture from a community development and economic mm-hmm. development perspective. And it all boiled down to a community coming together and being the ones that come up with the small things mm-hmm. that make a big difference. But it and is it, those small things. It is. Yeah, you know? it really is. It's it's Big things are great, but in the mm-hmm. end, it starts with right. small things and it starts with the cultural engagement right. and and movement, basically. And uh, so... That's so cool. You know, and we're just as good as Pensacola and all these other places where we've been. You know, the Studer Institute does great work. Yes. But Mm -hmm. I went last November. They had a meeting, and some people came from Lafayette talking about what other people do. And I I feel like here we are. We we can just do it. You guys are doing that. But it starts somewhere, right? You've got to figure out what those small things are. What are some of the... The other causes besides the Love Our Schools. Can you name some of these other projects? I know you've got, I looked well, on your website, there was a multitude of projects. Well, post-hurricane um, season in 2020 with Hurricane Laura, it started. Um, Dr. Schumacher was able to stand up a coalition of faith groups um, right after the storm passed near Lake Charles and over mm-hmm. Lake Charles. Um, a lot of people were disorganized, you know, they were in crisis. And uh, he just started calling pastors. And we had a whiteboard and I was just like 
call this one, call that one. And there were small coalitions of Mm -hmm. pastors, but he was kind of able to get a large group together and find out what their needs were and to keep them together. Um, We found mechanisms to help them organize. Mm -hmm. And even after the storm, they're still organized. And so they were able to help each other. There was a mechanism for uh, state groups to come in, national groups wow. to they, to filter in through mm-hmm. and to them, and and that group also can be um, brought in into the educational space with the community and family engagement. Mm-hmm. And so the idea was, well, there was Laura, and then there was Ida. Yeah. And so with Laura, we realized, you know, there's nothing greater than a disaster to bring people together. And so in Blue Sky, we tried, we were going to do that for Lafayette also, or the Acadiana areas to bring people together in Blue Sky within faith groups. Mm -hmm. And then Ida hit, right? And so um, the resources went to those in need post Ida, but the same type of concept. And so uh, with the Lafayette and Acadiana group, we had... um, even in Blue Sky, a group, a large group of pastors that continue to meet um, quarterly. So, and again, that's in keeping with just bringing people together and yeah, sitting yeah. them down and having them realize uh, that together they are, are stronger. Together they have a voice. Mm-hmm. You know, those those groups, uh, without being able to coordinate with the other groups and with themselves efficiently, there's nobody to, to carry the voice for what they need right. to, of what they can do. And and so, you know, them coming together, really, it's it's that's the name of the game. Mm-hmm. It's get people to come together and sit down at the, at the table and figure out what it is that they can do to end up helping mm-hmm. not just themselves but each other. And then good things happen. And, again, it's education. It's disaster relief. It's, I mean, you name it. It's, mm-hmm. it's this is a, it's, it's a strong town. Very. Yeah. And yeah, that's like the, like the book, and and yeah. it's it's about bringing people together. So, mm-hmm. do you find Erica that when you're trying to get people organized, having somebody like Kip at the table doesn't that help to get people to get involved? You know what I'm saying? Like I know there's VOAD, there's the volunteers uh, with disasters, there's all these different groups, but it seems like you guys have been able to really. Organize and yeah. implement in a He's very a natural effective leader, way, and people yeah. follow him. That's what I think. And yeah. so, um, you know, I, I know that that's that's why. Um, I mean, just you know, like Carly, she wanted, she thought he had great leadership, mm-hmm. and and she wanted to follow him. And so, other community members feel the same way, and I think that's how we've been able to plug in with philanthropy through his leadership. Mm-hmm. I was hoping Carly Omlabar could have been here today, but I think she's at the City Parish Council meetings. They're having budget hearings, and apparently, hopefully, there'll be a million dollars or something, um, you know, contributed toward the food deserts that we have in Lafayette Parish. So that's a huge need. But um, I just, I, I hope we haven't left anything out. I wanted y'all to talk about everything you're doing. And Erica, if we can, I'd like you to talk about your background. You're here working with Dr. Schumacher, but you come, you were a professional, you're an audiologist, and you've been successful in business. 
but and you brought your organizational skills to help the Schumacher yeah, so Family Foundation. I'm an audiologist. I was in private mm-hmm. practice in Lafayette um, for 25 years, and then I sold my practice. And I actually took a, a job in Seattle mm-hmm. for a couple of years in the Pacific Northwest, um, consulting, training for um, a manufacturer. And then I think in the fall of 19, Dr. Schumacher asked me if I'd like to come to work for the foundation. And I thought it was all about, you know, my experience in private practice <laughs> that would help out. And I said, tell me all the reasons you would hire me. And he said, because you bring people together. And I thought, huh, okay, that's cool. That so, is cool. And that is you. Yeah. So I moved back and mm-hmm. from, <laughs> from, uh, the minute my feet hit the ground in January of 2020, it's been nonstop. It's yeah. been, it's been wonderful. Well, you both have a giving philosophy. I'm looking at notes. Um, You both give. And I want to thank you, not only for making time today, but for what you do for our community. Um, There's so many needs. And when I see people traveling to other places, I think that's wonderful to be inspired. But we have the tools right here to do what we need to do. We do. That's right. And I think we have the collective heart. And in fact, I, I, I I would say that the, the us solving our problems, we're the only ones that can do it. Mm-hmm. You can take all the outside influences you want, but in the end, it's the little decisions that are made that are going to end up bringing people to success yeah. and bringing people together. Because right. otherwise, with all the money that the feds and the states and the, mm-hmm. I mean, why, why, why do we have any problems at all? If money could solve problems, if money could solve problems, and that's all it was, then we wouldn't have any problems. Right. Are you glad you became a doctor? Oh, I am, unequivocally. I'm glad I was born, and I'm glad I lived every day to right now at this for this interview. Thank you, because you could have lived anywhere. Could have, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't be here. Mm -hmm. And so I look at my life and realize how amazingly lucky I was and how many directions that could have been taken that would have taken me maybe better places, maybe worse, but I'm here and I love it. So. And who knows what the future is going to hold for you. That's right. For both of you. Yeah. So Erica Ray and Dr. Kip Schumacher, what, what an honor to be here. And I'm so glad you took time to meet with me. I want to thank our listeners for being so supportive. Please visit discoverlafayette.net to hear this interview and others. And even more importantly, if you haven't subscribed, please, please subscribe to discoverlafayette.net. And before we close out, I'm going to do two things. I'm going to plug Love Our Schools Home Giveaway. And can they just go on Schumacher Family Foundation? Loveourschoolsfoundation.org. Love Our Schools Foundation. Foundation.org. And you can buy tickets, at least one, if not four or more. You can buy as many as 200. <laughs> <laughs> and have the, um, the chance to, to win a house built by the great builder, Greg Manuel, in Crete Farms in Upper Lafayette. So it's a great place. And I want to thank our sponsors, too, for making this possible. Home Bank, thank you so much. And Raider, and in particular, Jason Sikora, who mixes our tape. Thank you for making it sound much more professional than I ever could. On behalf of Discover Lafayette, this is Jan Swift. Thank you. Thank you.